You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This, to me, is like the really fascinating material. I don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly grew into Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-boggling. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, Normal, guys. We have Rob. Rob is here. Hello, everybody. He's back from the uh, from the hell that is. Oh no, no, no! It's not it's festival that out, season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I hate festival season. <laughs> I understand you had a, a public service announcement, Rob. Yes, yes, I do. I was selling something yesterday on Craigslist and. Not long after I posted it, somebody hit me up and they said, you're asking prices quite reasonable. I would like to purchase this thing that you are selling. Uh, I'm going to need to use a shipping agent and I'll have to pay you through PayPal. I was like, okay, whatever. Uh, sent my PayPal email and they sent, I got an email a little while later that said, uh, you have a pending payment from PayPal and this amount is for the, the item, this amount is for shipping. And then I got another email saying that I needed to pay all of this shipping costs to the shipping company before that money would actually show up on my PayPal account. I was like, well, so I checked my account online and there's nothing pending there. So I was like, okay, let me Google this. And apparently this is a pretty common uh, scam. So I just wanted to throw that out there. If somebody tells you you need to pay for shipping for something that they're paying you to pay shipping for <laughs> through, it's, it's crap. And Surfiel, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing okay. Just, uh, Back from vacation in the western Colorado and uh, just uh, taking it easy and getting back to work, unfortunately. Yeah, it always sucks to get back to work, especially after a long, nice, long, long, nice trip. Yes, sir. Well, as we've been doing, guys, we have the guests on the line and I'm pretty excited about <clears throat> these couple of guests. 
one we've had on before and one we have not. Uh, we have Jennifer Stein, who is a good friend of ours that we met in Minneapolis about two years ago. This is uh, your third time, I think, Jennifer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this would be... It I might th- be. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it may be your fourth... Well, technically, it could be your fourth, because I was up there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because I think the first time we did the, at the Paradise Symposium that we had you on, uh, and then I went up to Philadelphia, and we we met up for lunch there with my uncle, who you know, and then yes. we had you on uh, for for the show we did with Travis Walton to talk a little more about the the Travis film. And now we have you on to talk about the the MUFON Symposium that is coming up. And we also, guys, we also have Kathleen Marden, who is uh, a new guest to the show. Kathleen, thank you for coming on Conspiracy Normal. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you this evening. Absolutely. Thank you. And you, uh, I believe you're the, the niece of Betty Hill. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Okay. I was 13 years old when they had their experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I definitely want to get into that. I've got all kinds of questions. But uh, we have uh, Jennifer here on the line to talk a little about the MUFON Symposium. And Jennifer, I understand that you are organizing that this year. Well, I, I have to say I'm part of an excellent team of people for sure. Um, and it's a real pleasure, but I am technically holding the the title as Symposium Chair. You are correct, <laughs> which basically comes with a lot of headaches. It means the buck stops with me, and I have to solve all the problems that nobody else solved. <laughs> but it's going to be a great, great symposium. So how'd you get tricked into doing that this year? How'd you? Get- well, I think it's better if we don't. I don't. I think it's better <laughs> if we don't go into some of those details. But it was sort of by default. Um, gotcha. You know, life life throws many curveballs to all of us, and um, you know, we just have to kind of fly with the curveballs to come. So, uh, I stepped into the role about a year ago, but usually a conference is two to three years in the planning, mm-hmm. and um, I was happy to step up to the job. You know, I'm a former event planner for many years. I did that <laughs> professionally, so it's quite fell in, in my court. But um, I'll tell you, it's going to be December, um, I'm saying December, it's uh, 27th, uh, 28th, and 29th, and it will be at the Cherry Hill Crown Plaza. It's considered, we, we're calling it the Philadelphia Conference because it's the team that essentially organized it from, from the get-go. And um, Cherry Hill is just across the river. It's kind of like Minneapolis, St. Paul. They're like two cities next to each other, Camden and Philadelphia. And things are much more economically uh, less expensive in New Jersey than they are in Philadelphia. So it's to the advantage of our guests that we uh, went across the river, just a short hop, skip, and jump across the Ben Franklin Bridge. And we have an excellent conference facility called the Crown Plaza Hotel, which is large and sprawling, and we can accommodate up to about a thousand people. Although I think we'll probably have around five hundred, and we have a great lineup of speakers. Would you like me to tell you who's who's going to be there and what our theme is? Absolutely, that was going to be my next question. Well, first of all, okay. what's the theme? Well, what's the theme, and then we'll kind of get into the speakers. And we have one of the speakers on the line, by the way. 
Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So the theme this year is UFOs, extraterrestrials, and the future of humanity. And it's it's really kind of a forward-looking symposium with our speakers. We're trying to literally look a little bit into the future. We're trying to acknowledge where we are, where we've been. If uh, anyone was at last year's MUFON symposium, the title of that was the Secret Space Program, which was a very brave uh, topic for MUFON to tackle because there was much um, debate about whether or not there is a secret space program. And MUFON takes the approach that this is our opportunity to invite experts in and let them give us their opinion. And then it's up to the audience and further research to verify some of this. But there were many people that said, oh, you know, this is malarkey. There isn't a secret space program. And there were others that said, oh, no, yes, there is, and there has been for years. So MUFON is on the cutting edge and continues to be with this year's theme of, you know, what is the future of humanity in light of what we now know? And, of course, this year has been an incredible year with the December 16th announcements in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, with Luis Elizondo, a former intelligence officer from the Pentagon, uh, stepping forward and saying, I was responsible for the uh, advanced uh, uh, aerospace threat detection program, which watched unusual craft activity on top of other things like asteroids and, you know, coronal mass ejections and, you know, many other things that we face from space. Certainly the UFO topic is one that's been on our plate and the general public doesn't know, and maybe they should. So that was a huge announcement. It's, it's as much as saying, uh, uh, you know, like, like the Roswell incident, which made the cover of major newspapers across the country, except this time it wasn't debunked. The public might be asleep at the wheel, sort of, maybe not really understanding the impact of this, but Luis Elizondo is our keynote speaker. <laughs> so we are definitely standing on um, an intelligence officer from the Pentagon, and we're taking the conference from there. Okay. Just to preface what's happening. <laughs> it's huge. It's huge, and it's very important. Yeah, it- it definitely, it definitely, definitely sounds like it. You know, that's been a big thing over the last. What has it been? Six, seven months now that that came out. Yeah, I think that came out six, in what December? Months. Yeah, December sixteenth, yeah. and we're almost six months to the day. Today's July seventeenth, so just about six months to the day. So, do you think that that's had uh, personally? I mean, this can go out to both of you. Both of you. Uh, do you think that that's had an impact on these studies? I mean, are we kind of in, like in a different era of uh, ufological or this this kind of research now because of this? Well, I'm going to let Kathy take that. Okay. In in my opinion, the fact that uh, we have several. Um, men who are former uh, high officials in the federal government uh, are, and who are considered to be mainstream and highly respected by the general population and coming out and releasing this information does have an impact, I believe. I think that it's extremely important and I'm very hopeful that they move forward with the release of this evidence because it's highly credible. It's coming from credible individuals. Okay. 
I, I would I would second that. And just to follow through with what Kathy is referring to, um, and, and before I give you this little expose, I want to make sure you can hear me okay, because I am now uh, in my personal office. So if you okay. want to phone me on a cell phone, if I cut in and out, I'm happy to switch to my home phone. Just uh, to let you know. Okay. Well, we yeah, we can hear you just fine, Jennifer. So Perfect. Okay. So following up on what Kathy said, um, when Luis Elizondo left the Pentagon, he joined a group formed by a, uh, a former music star named Tom DeLong. And this group was called To The Stars Academy, or TTS for short. And the other people in this group are Jim Semivan, who was a former Central Intelligence Agency senior member, and Hal Putoff, who is, was a, as a, is a physicist, um, and he worked for many years at Stanford. Uh, he worked with Ingo Swan, and he was part of a remote viewing project, but he was also part of many other uh, high-level, peer-reviewed groups, and he's a journal writer and an author, a highly respected gentleman. Steve Justice was a former program director for Lockheed Martin Aerospace Systems, and Chris Mellon. He was a former deputy secretary of defense for the intelligence agency under the Clinton administration. So these are not your um, hospital worker in the back. Not that that should discredit anyone, but, you know, this is not somebody walking a dog smoking a cigarette who's saying, hey, I saw something in the sky. These are literally insiders working in the, the intelligence, the aerospace industry, um, who are saying there has been a program afloat. This is the tip of the iceberg, and it is huge. I've heard Nick Pope speak very uh, articulately about this, and I, you know, will quote him to say that, you know, we have been told publicly by our government, even under the Obama administration, there was a big initiative with the citizens' hearings to put pressure on the government to admit or come forward about any data that they had or were storing or were archiving about potential visitors or threats or communications from extraterrestrial uh, civilizations, and the Obama administration blatantly denied it. Uh, so this information coming forward is, in fact, evidence for the American public and those in the media that are paying attention that, in fact, our media or our government has not been telling the truth, and our media has not been reporting well on this, even since December 16th. So it's hugely important. And people who are in the know, who are, say, witnesses, experiencers, book readers, conference goers, they get it. And uh, I, they're flocking in droves to conferences like the MUFON Symposium because they want the information. They want it firsthand. And I think this is the only public appearance that Luis Elizondo has made or will be making anytime soon. I want to put this out there, and I, and I don't want to get too bogged down in this because this is like a show in and of itself. Um I've heard some criticism about To The Stars Academy and uh, some of this other stuff that's kind of come out that uh, a lot of people are saying that this could all be like some kind of uh, intelligence agency obfuscation or something like that. Do you any any thoughts on that? 
I may have some thoughts. Do you want to take a stab at that, Kathy? Well, in my opinion, whenever anything comes out, there are conspiracy theorists who are going to uh, put a spin on whatever it is. I do not believe that these former intelligence officials, scientists, and uh, people who work for the federal government in very uh, high positions are doing this in order to trick all of us. Uh, And Commander Fravor, who was the pilot of one of these planes, has come out publicly and, and has stated uh, that, uh, he, and, and I have to say that he's highly credible. He had 3,500 hours of flying time, and uh, all of this was done uh, with federal money. But he had 16 years uh, fly, flying time. He uh, said that it approached its supersonic speed that it stopped at 80,000 feet, it dropped to 20,000 feet, and then it stopped at 50 feet above the ocean. He said that it looked like it was a 40-foot-long piece of tic-tac candy, that it moved like a ping-pong ball uh, over the water, that it accelerated at incredible speed. It moved in ways that we cannot. It moved against our aerodynamic rules. And it he got within a half mile of the craft. He tracked it for five minutes. He said that unexplained metal alloys have been recovered. There were no wings, no rotor, extremely abrupt uh, changes in direction. Uh, This is something that someone who's highly competent is coming forward and explaining. And so we have not only these people who are involved in uh, government agencies uh, who have joined this group. I know there have been a lot of questions about Tom DeLonge's part in this, but I have to commend him for being able to actually interest these scientists and government officials into taking part in this. And this is being released as the result of a Freedom of Information Act request. That information could not be released until the, unless the federal government said it could. It had been a secret study. Yes, it's and, true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think that, as I said before, uh, whenever something like this happens, there is always going to be a rumbling beneath uh, that, oh, could this be another trick by the federal government? And... You know, sooner or later, we'll find out. But regardless of what happens, we have Commander Fravor's statements. We have the video evidence. And and uh, it is my understanding that the, the gun camera type radar that was used is extremely expensive, extremely accurate, high tech, new, and it costs a a lot of money just to train these individuals to use this technology. This isn't some 1950s technology we're using here. Yeah, this, I, yeah, the Tic Tac video is, is very, very interesting. And to add to what you're saying, like, so the video was 2004, 
this study, I believe, was around 2007 to 2009. So all this is just is now just now coming out, and and we're learning about it. And as far as that study is concerned, um, I mean, it was pretty grassroots. I mean, it didn't have a, it well, didn't have a ton of funding. It was like fifty million dollars, which is kind of a drop in the bucket. No, no, it was it was twenty two million dollars. Oh, it was and even it was less. Line, okay. It, it was a line item buried in some other research, but it wasn't a study. Understand that this was literally set up by Senator Harry Reid right. as sort of a secret program to, as part of our security agency, to sort of protect our country. And it was involved in the military to be able to inform uh, leaders, government agencies, and uh, people in the military of really what our uh, a potential aerospace threat could be. And it involved other things beyond just UFOs, but UFOs tended to be the consistent thing that landed on Luis Elizondo's desk. And it was funded by appropriations from, 19, from 2007 to 2011. But then uh, the funding dried up. Essentially, the job title disappeared for Luis, but the reports didn't stop coming. And upwards around... Ten years later, 2017, he'd pretty much had it. And he said the government has got to put funding for this. They've got to take it seriously, and they're not taking it seriously. And I'm in a compromised position. My desk is full of stacks of reports, and I can't be public about this. I can't get funding for it. I'm in a quagmire. I'd rather join a private group where this can be given the attention it needs. And, and I'll add one thing to, to Kathy's excellent expose on the seriousness and importance of David uh, Fravor's report, who was this Navy pilot in the F-16 that was public and has done a number of um, videos online that anyone can go and look at. From what I understand, and I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure this is the way things played out with Luis before he left his government post, is he got agreement from the government that there are things he could be public with. You have to understand that when someone is in a very uh, strict position or a serious position with high-level clearances, there is a reason why they have those clearances. There is an understanding uh, that basically, in, in, in a short nutshell, loose lips sink ships. And that, of course, is from the Second World War. But if you're not careful about what you say, you can jeopardize the security of your country. And you want to be always aware of who is listening to what you are communicating. So Luis Elizondo, being a member of a high-level institution as he was at the Pentagon, made agreements with the federal government and the Pentagon prior to his leaving that they would release this footage along with his departure and his public you know, uh, statements about his position in the Pentagon, his job, his job title, what his role was and that the two would coincide together. This was a well-orchestrated and long-planned release with the Pentagon's permission. I think the public needs to really understand that. Yeah, that's that there true. Are, 
Apparently, there are apparently some divisions within some secret programs within our government, our aerospace, our military, that come in contact with this field on a regular basis that believe that the American public needs to be brought into the educational process. And it's not easy to wrap your brain around this. How do you start telling the American public right, that something is real and you've been denying that truth to them for blatantly almost 70 years? Since 1947, we're now 2017. I think that's 70 years. How do you begin to start to change? It's not going to be an easy process. And the media, you know, is so convinced that they need to debunk this topic. And I get why they're doing it. I mean, I know people, I've had conversations with Jake Tapper and other very high-level people in the media who, who uh, agree this is a hot potato. You know, if you sort of say there's deniability to it or there's hard to get access to information, which is top secret, it's a way of sort of casting doubt on it because then as a representative of the media, you don't have to research it further because you can't get access to the data. So it's literally this hot potato that's being passed and passed and passed. But in the process of passing the hot potato, the, the truth is coming out and you have to learn to read between the lines. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Very, very good. I know I can. I can sound like a preacher sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into your pulpit, Jennifer. Uh, oh boy. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the. Let's talk a little bit the other guests that you're having um, at this conference symposium. Absolutely, there are some amazing people. Well, we start off Saturday with John Brandenburg. And he is a Ph.D. plasma physicist, and he's worked in lots of areas in um, between NASA, uh, the uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs. He's a really fascinating guy and a really fun guy. And he's going to be sharing some mind-blowing information in his scientific opinion that there's lots of evidence that Mars was probably inhabited in the past, and it lost its atmosphere, and it was probably an advanced civilization. So I'll leave it at that. We don't know uh, much more about exactly what he wants to discuss, but he worked on the strategic initiative under uh, you know, the Reagan administration. He worked on space propulsion systems, designed some to even go to Mars. Um, he's... Uh, He's just an amazing fellow, um, and I think he's really going to enlighten us all. And after him, we have Lynn Katai, who's going to be speaking. And many people know Lynn well from the Phoenix Lights. Not only did she write a book about the Phoenix Lights, but she also uh, did this very famous documentary. And uh, Lynn is no slouch. She's a medical doctor who basically decided that the UFO topic was is equally important as her own medical career. And she's been paving the way as a spokesperson for all sorts of things like the freedom of information, don't doubt what you saw, uh, get involved in your community as she did with the, the Phoenix City Council, pushing the issue uh, that probably the Phoenix Lights was America's largest massive sighting that ever happened with probably over 10,000 people. Uh, those, those are kind of guesstimated numbers from people that phoned in, people that reported things, people that uh, were interviewed for the film, and people that talked to the city council members. It's a bit of a guesstimation, but it's probably pretty accurate. 
and uh, the the issue is still debunked today, and yet there are, you know, literally a hundred pieces of film footage <laughs> of this craft that flew over Phoenix. And the governor so and the governor second. said that he saw something at the time. Right. Yep. Fife Symington openly admitted that he was pressured to debunk it. Yeah. Which he did in the city council meeting. You know, and poor Frances Barwood. Oh my goodness. She was the city council person that brought it to the attention of the Phoenix, you know, city council. And then she was ridiculed for even bringing it up. People ignored her. And she eventually left uh, the city council. I think and she moved to Flagstaff, which is a shame. But yes, so she's our second speaker. And she's going to be really speaking about how do we address the issue with future generations? Because we have to start bringing in young people into this discussion. They have to start educating themselves, and they have to be the next generation of researchers. Um, and I think that will happen. But uh, again, our, our debunking campaign has been pretty successful, and many young people are so wrapped up in instantaneous gratification that they don't sit down and read a book or study history. And to really understand this 70-year truth embargo on the UFO topic, you need to kind of start, you know, being a bit of a bookworm. Um, So she's going to talk about future generations. Uh, Next, we have Nick Pope. He's going to be speaking about uh, the world in 2045. And it's I've seen part of this presentation already that he gave in uh, in Pittsburgh last year, and it was a knockout. You don't know the things we're going to have to deal with and face. I mean, we're just starting to feel some of the uh, the periphery of this, you know, with the Facebook leaks of uh, personal information and you know what what we live with in in uh, the social media world. It's uh, it's a brave new world out there in the future. And he's going to address how the UFO topic comes to play with all of the technologies which will come into play. So, again, we're going back to our theme, which is this overarching arch, you know, uh, for people to understand. Robert Wood will be speaking. He's a Ph.D., an amazing uh, gentleman in his own right, uh, worked for McDonnell Douglas for many, many years and has been a long-term uh, member of uh, MUFON. I'm sure Kathy, who has been on the board of MUFON, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Kathy, you know Bob very well. I know Bob well, but I have not been on MUFON's board of directors. Oh, forgive me. Okay, I'm, I'm misunderstanding. <laughs> I have sat you know, on some board meetings before, but yes. I didn't want to yes. add that to the list of things That's I do. okay. <laughs> so Bob, Bob Wood will be discussing alien viruses, crashed UFOs, MJ-12, and biowarfare. Um, he's uh, also recently written a book about the, uh, the controversial gentleman named Bill Tompkins, who just passed away, but who was a speaker last year in Las Vegas. I got to meet Bill and speak with him and hear him present. So you've, you probably know who Bill Tompkins is. Do you not, Adam? Uh, the name doesn't ring a bell, no. Oh, okay. Well, Bill Tompkins is a very fascinating person for your listeners to, to research. Um, you're, you're, giving I'll, I'll me, you're giving me that. you're giving me guest ideas here, Jennifer. Yes. So. Now, okay, yeah, he's deceased. Yeah, Bill. Oh. Bill only just recently passed away. He was 93, but he was all there, and he gave a knockout presentation at the Secret Space Program Symposium last year in Las Vegas. So, any listener, if they want 
can actually watch that at MUFON TV. I think we've had it up for a while, maybe as a free video people could watch, or for a small fee a month, I think it's like $4.99 a month, you can become a member and watch a lot of past conferences and past presentations. But Bill worked inside uh, the highest levels of the secret space program through the Second World War and straight on up to, I think, the uh, late 90s. So he's a fascinating talk. And the reason I'm mentioning Bill Tompkins is uh, Robert Wood, who will be speaking on alien viruses and, of course, UFOs and MJ-12, he knew Bill Tompkins very well, and his latest book is just coming out on Bill Tompkins called Selected by Extraterrestrials. So uh, just to pique your interest and your listeners' interest, After Robert Wood, we have Ted Peters, who's going to be talking about the future of humanity, literally our our theme, from a theological perspective. So Ted has written a number of books, and he um, he's a theologian from Berkeley, California, and he's written you know several books on this topic. He also produces a journal on a regular basis. Um, His recent book is called UFOs, God Chariots like sort of a question. And then the subtitle is Spirituality, Ancient Aliens, Religious Yearnings in the Age of Extraterrestrials. So it's a fascinating book. So he'll be, you know, sharing experts, excerpts, I should say, from that. And then, of course, the um, then we there's a one-on-one with Luis Elizondo for anyone who is interested. And then we have David Pilates. You probably know who David Pilates is. Yes, I do. He has... Yes, he's well-known, certainly in the paranormal world, for researching Bigfoot and Sasquatch. Um, And And uh, I've learned a lot. The Missing 411 series. Yes, exactly, exactly. So he's a fascinating researcher and, of course, a former uh, police and private detective. So that makes up uh, Saturday, except we have one special thing for everyone on Saturday night. We have um, Dan uh, Richard, who is who, who was actually an actor in the 2001 Space Odyssey, and uh, he played the half man, half ape in the opening sequence of that film. And he's had a long career in Hollywood, so he's going to come up and say a few words, and we're going to actually share the 2001 Space Odyssey, which is a very, very just kind of fun and. Uh, an interesting thing to do for those who are night owls who want to stay up and, and talk and watch a movie. And then on Sunday, uh, I should say each morning, both Saturday morning and Sunday morning, we have experiencer workshops, which Kathy Martin will be leading along with George Medich. And that's a separate event, and it's held in a lot of separate private confidentiality. Uh, there are no video cameras that are allowed in there, no audio recording, and uh, everyone who comes in agrees to keep the confidentiality of what they hear and share there. And it's basically uh, a group opportunity for people to um, hear what other experiencers are experiencing. And I think sometimes that gives people courage to go forward. So I, I missed uh, stating that our Saturday morning begins with that as a separate private event if people want to attend that. So then Sunday morning, 
We have Don Dundeary, who will be presenting, and he's a PhD. The title of his talk is The American Personality Inventory. And I'm going to let Kathy say a little bit about uh, Don Dundeary, because I've been talking too much, and she has worked closely with him in her research. Okay. For the past three years, Dr. Dundeary and I have been working on a comprehensive study on experiencers. And... uh, We had well over 700 people who participated, and after we had uh, eliminated those who did not complete the survey and those who we had identified as hoaxers, we ended up with 516 good surveys. So we, I have done a commonality study on this, but Dr. Don Derry, who uh, is a recently retired a psychologist and statistician from McGill University, uh, took part in the development of the American Personality Inventory. This was developed by Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis, who is a psychiatric social worker from Long Island. And uh, they used the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory as a basis sort of a foundation for developing this inventory. It took a very long time. They had many, many people who participated in this, but they uh, were able to uh, positively identify those who have UFO abduction syndrome as a separate category from experiencers in general, as a separate category from people who uh, might be wannabes, and as a separate category from the general public who doesn't know a lot about this. Uh, It was very well tested and standardized by Dr. Don Derry, and he administered that to 188 participants uh, who were willing to take part in phase two of our study, and we have some very, very interesting results. Well, what What does he mean by UFO abduction syndrome? That's that's interesting. I've, I've not heard this before. That is uh, a syndrome that uh, was identified because the people who have this have a certain set of knowledge, even secret knowledge, that people who are abductees have. And in addition to that, on this uh, test that they take, they also show that they have the emotional signature of those who have been abducted by non-human entities. So that's what it is. But they're not certain that they have been? Um, Well, they might be certain that they have been. This is this test. I've taken this test. Let me tell you, and uh, you cannot fake this test out. The questions are not very straightforward at all, and uh, and it will identify whether or not you have been abducted by aliens. It, it's a complicated issue. It, it really is, Adam. I think you can appreciate that uh, memory, especially if your memory is blocked in any way by possibly some uh, electrical interference with your 
mental circuitry or something, recovering those memories then becomes tricky. What is there an example you, <laughs> of a of a type of question that is asked? Um, do you uh, let me think? Do you maybe do you think do you feel like you would like to be a fish in water? Huh. <laughs> it's more that, psychological that profiling. Very similar to that. I've um I mm-hmm. I don't have the test in front of me right now, but that. That is the type of question you might get on this test. I'll I'll add that I have not taken the test, but I have read a little bit about it, Adam. And I would say there are many different institutions which can employ different levels of testing. Uh, I know uh, some industry people who used to use a particular caliber test to do an evaluation of an employee before they would hire them to understand how they would respond, say, in a stressful situation. Will they tend to act towards aggressiveness? Uh, towards their fellow employees or their management staff when um, their own, say, standards of excellence have been compromised or they feel threatened or something. And there's ways to evaluate how truthful a person may be. Even if they say one thing, their personality testing may reveal a completely different set of circumstances. And there are ways to set up testing questions that can reveal this. Um, it's there's that's why P, people get PhDs in psychology. You know, there's there's actually a field to this, um, and uh, experts in the field who can give you insights into uh, maybe a situation that you might not otherwise get without these levels of questions upon questions upon questions that can reveal a deeper subtext going on. Is there a place that you can go to take this test, like online? There isn't currently. Um, MUFON has been attempting to uh, set this up so that we can use it in our field investigations. Uh, right now, um, it would uh, an individual would have to make a request uh, to have this, uh, to be able to take this test. Uh, it would go hand in hand with an investigation of the individual's experiences, uh, because that is very important as well. Um, but I do want to stress that if you did not meet the target or, or come very close to the target as having UFO abduction syndrome, that does not mean that you're not an experiencer. It means that there is a certain set of individuals who can be identified as having certain characteristics and commonalities at a very high statistically significant rate, and that these individuals um, are in this group by themselves. Now, there are experiencers, many types of experiencers, who do not have this syndrome. If you can understand that, there are people who have very, very positive experiences, people who uh, have conscious experiences, conscious contact, uh, channeling, people who are having uh, 
highly negative experiences uh, who do not have this UFO abduction syndrome or alien abduction syndrome. But uh, so there's, there's a very wide range of individuals here, but not as many clustered around the UFO abduction syndrome target, if you can understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, think, that, uh, I think that I do. This is just a way to try to see if someone has possibly had an experience or is prone to such experiences. A person who has had this type of experience, and I think that it might be mostly centered around the grays. Okay. I cannot say that definitively, but most of the people uh, who were centered around that target had uh, contact with the grays. So something that is much more people that are having much more a negative kind of experience and rather something that is much more positive in nature. Um, not necessarily very negative. We had others who had, were having very negative experiences who were not clustered around the okay. target. Okay. Um, but, uh, and there were people who uh, hit the target who uh, said that their experiences were both positive and negative, but not that bad. Let me give you an example. Okay. When we asked uh, the individuals who participated in our survey if they could end their experiences today, if it were possible, 71% said that they would not want to end their experiences. Interesting. That's amazing. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Uh, yes, that, that is. That's that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, and I, Kathy, Kathy, yeah, I was just going to interject and say I, uh, there are some other very interesting statistics, too, that Kathy can share with you about whether or not it was an overall positive experience that uh, Adam may not be privy to your research, but I would encourage you to share it, Kathy. Yes, well, I'm going to be presenting it at the symposium. Uh, I'm uh, on Sunday, but there is some fascinating information that I have revealed so far. We had 118 questions, but some of the, the most highly significant information that we discovered is that those um, who were in the abductee group uh, observed a UFO at less than 500 feet in the distance. Among the survey takers in general, it was 65%. Um, we also discovered that uh, the, this is generational, particularly among those in that abductee group. And I think that that was highly significant. Um, among the abductee group, 60% of their family members observed a UFO up close whereas it was 50% for the survey takers in general. Um, when we asked if family members had been abducted or contacted, depending upon, uh, you know, the, the quote, different types of experiences, 60% said that family members had been abducted. It was 41% overall for the survey. 
So you can see a difference there. Um, also, something that was borne out by our study that uh, has been identified in uh, previous uh, academic studies is that this increased people's spirituality. We asked if these individuals uh, had practiced a, a formal religion or had a formal religious belief. And we discovered that a fairly high percentage did. But then we asked if this experience changed their religious beliefs in any way. And uh, some of them said, yes, it changed them. But it was always that among the abductee group that they became more highly spiritual. Also, psychic, uh, intuitive, em empathic, where they could actually uh, feel other people's emotions. And they stated that the non-human entities that they interacted with could feel their emotions as well. So this was was very, very interesting to me. Um, when we asked, are you an empath, for example, can you sense the energy, emotions, and physical well-being of others? 95% of the abductee group stated that they are empaths. It was 81% among the survey takers. So still very high. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, something else. Oh, something that uh, I wanted to clarify was we've heard so many skeptics state that uh, these individuals are only having sleep paralysis and hypnagogic or hyp hypnopompic hallucinations. I wanted to ask the question, uh, have you been, uh, have you awoken and found that you were paralyzed and could only move your eyes, yet you detected an entity in the room. And uh, of, of a highly significant percentage, I don't have that right in front of me right now, stated that they had had that experience. I then asked, have you been awake and moving, but then saw an entity in your room, and, or I didn't say in your room, I just saw, saw an entity and then you became paralyzed. Well, the survey takers' uh, percentage in decreased when asked that question. But the abductee group had a highly significant rate of participants in the survey who stated that they had been awake, they had been moving, they saw a non-human entity, and then they became paralyzed. That's fascinating. That's very, it's, it's like all of a sudden, like, you know, in the middle of their daytime life, it could happen. Yes, it could happen anywhere. Wow. Uh, another thing that uh, we asked about was paranormal activity. In 2012, Denise Stoner and I did a survey uh, among 75 individuals. It was a small research study. We had 50 participants who stated that they were abductees, and we had uh, 25 who stated that they had never had that type of experience. We wanted to, to determine whether or not 
these people who were experiencers uh, were a special category apart from the general population, if they had certain commonalities. And we discovered 23 commonalities that they all shared. Well, then we found out that 88% stated they had paranormal activity in their homes. We didn't ask what type of activity. So on this MUFON ERT, Experiencer Research Team study, we did ask that question. And what we discovered is that there are two things, two types of paranormal activity that are occurring in experiencers' homes at a higher rate, a much higher rate than among uh, others. And in the experiencer survey, we found out that 61% of the experiencers observed light orbs in their homes. These are not not just pointing a camera into the air and, and snapping a photo, but actually seeing these orbs. Yeah, a physical manifestation of it. A yeah. physical manifestation right. in their homes, lighted orbs. Uh, another thing that we discovered is that uh, we asked the question, have you experienced a sensation of unexplained motion in your mattress, such as the feeling that something unseen is walking on your bed? Well, I have to say, when I was an, uh, an investigator years ago, and somebody would tell me that, I would wonder if it was their imagination. But then... I decided, I, well, I had worked with many more people who were saying that. So I decided to see how common this was or how common this is among experiencers. Among the abductee group, 75% had experienced the sensation of unexplained motion in their mattress. Among the survey takers, it was 58%, still statistically significant. And those were the two most statistically significant paranormal phenomena in experiencers' homes. What conclusion do you reach from that? That there's because I, I have heard this many times that people that will have the UFO experience or they will have the alien abduction experience, that they will then experience some kind of paranormal activity. Uh whether it's poltergeists or, or the stuff that you just described, what conclusion do you, I mean, is there, are there any conclusions that, that you could personally draw from that? Well, I think that it deserves further study. Absolutely. This is something that UFO investigators have shied away from. They didn't want to think about this, but I'll tell you that I have some very, very good photographs of, uh, these orbs in the homes of experiencers. I have seen one of these orbs myself. One of the experiencers that I work with, he, he's from Canada. It's an extremely interesting case with a lot of evidence. And he had been diagnosed with lymphoma. He was scheduled to go in for surgery. And uh, I told him, I know that sometimes ETs uh, will heal experiencers who request healing. In fact, it was about 45% uh, 
uh, in our survey, and I believe it was even higher than that in the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters survey. So it, this is a fairly statistically significant. Well, I told him to do that, or I suggested that he do that, and that I would do the same. And I suggested that he also pray, because he, he, he did believe in God. And so he did both of these things. And one night before he was to go into surgery, there was a light orb. It's on video. It's the only known documented case of healing by an orb in, in the world, as far as I know. And there's a medical doctor in California who has his records and is studying this and writing about it. This orb came into his room, slid down his wall, flew like a butterfly across the room, put out sort of like tentacles, and uh, then dove down into his body. After that happened, he slept for at least 12 hours. When he awakened, that huge mass on the side of his neck was gone. By the time he went in for surgery, four necrotic nodes were removed from his neck. Whoa. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> pretty amazing, isn't it? And Kathy, did not your um, aunt also have some kind of healing on a cast she had on her arm at the end of her life? Well, I wrote about I this in Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. Uh, I was taking care of my aunt and, and also my cousin, Connie, was coming up from Arkansas where she lived, and she'd, she'd stay for uh, two or three weeks and then go home to her husband, and I would stay for two or three weeks, but I was there every day. One day, uh, Connie was with Betty, and I arrived at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, to, to assist during the day. And um, the home looked very different than it usually did. Usually the, the back door was open, so just the screen door was, was there. Uh, the shades were all drawn uh, open, and uh, they were dressed that morning they had both slept very, very late. Um, the, the door was closed. The shades were still drawn. And something highly significant happened during the night. Uh, Betty had a fractured wrist and she was also paralyzed in the other arm due to the, the, the cancerous tumor that was on the upper right uh, section of her lung, uh, squeezing the brachial plexus nerve. And what happened was that this cast, this, it wasn't really a hard cast, it was more of a soft cast that was wrapped and wrapped around her arm by the physician, was off her arm and folded up on a chair across the room. Well, Betty couldn't possibly have folded it, and she couldn't have walked to that chair 
because she was paralyzed. She was not able to walk either because of the, the damage that this cancerous tumor was doing to her body. So that happened. Then Betty suddenly seemed to be a lot better. Her eyes were bright. They had been kind of glazed over. This was in the end stages of cancer. She, this was happened in June. She died in October. We know that people rally oftentimes just before their deaths, but this was several months before, so it can't be explained as that. Uh, she grew stronger in many ways. It, it, it almost seemed like a miracle was going to be performed. We had a medical doctor in who was documenting this. Hospice uh, was amazed by the changes they saw in Betty and also her cat, Raisa, who had always been by Betty's side, suddenly became terrified of Betty and would skirt the perimeter of the room, wouldn't go near Betty for an entire week and spent that week under the bed unless she was... Uh, going to the, the kitty litter box or to eat. So uh, it was it was something that was pretty amazing. Unfortunately, uh, Betty's health did decline after a couple of weeks and and then the cancer took its regular course. But it was very interesting that that occurred. That is absolutely I, I find fascinating. That yeah, that that's fascinating. Uh, Kathleen, she, she she continued to have experiences, right? After the nineteen sixty one experience, she did she continue to have these types of experiences for the Although rest of her life. Although she denied it, well, Betty denied having had these types of experiences for the rest of her life. I think that she denied it for the men, for the same reason that many of those early experiencers denied it. Uh, because they, with all of the evidence she and Barney had, which was a tremendous amount of evidence, uh, radar evidence, 12 to 14 witnesses to the UFO that night, physical evidence, uh, and, and they were so savagely uh, debunked by disinformants. Uh, who would want to go forward and say, I'm having these experiences, but I don't have any evidence this time. It would have been ridiculous. But I do believe that she did have continuing experiences. And I know that some two individuals who were riding with her, whom I spoke to and who were also in Betty's written record, uh, were riding with Betty at night. When in the first case, uh, a UFO came down and was flying along right beside the car, and hmm. uh, something seems to have happened. They had some missing time. In the other case, uh, he and Betty were riding along at night, and all of a sudden they felt as if the car was being lifted up into the air, and the next thing they knew, the car was coming down on a new section of road several miles ahead of where they had been. 
So I do believe that something happened in those cases. And knowing that this is something that repeats over and over again throughout a person's lifetime, um, our statistics indicate this. Uh, I'm not at all surprised that Betty had continuing experiences. So that's that's a that's a lot to take in just about what we're offering as part of our team, <laughs> right? It's like UFOs, extraterrestrials, and the future of humanity. Like, where do we go? How do we wrap our brains around this? It's a lot to take in and digest. Yeah, there's and, uh, th- there's I, there's I, a I, lot I have, to it, Jennifer and Kathleen. There's a lot I, to this phenomenon that I, absolutely. I, I I think that people look at this and say, well, it's just little gray men or green men or whatever color that they're coming down and they're taking people and that's it. But I I think that there's so much more to this than, and, and I think that this research that Kathleen is doing and that others are doing that is really bearing this out. Absolutely. It is the frontier of the understanding of our human condition and maybe the understanding of our human history. This may have been going on for thousands of years, and we change in our ability and on our approach to be able to digest this. I mean, maybe in ancient times it was dealt with as the devil, and then, you know, gradually it was it was dealt with uh Differently, you know, as we moved in our consciousness. But if we're going to advance as fairies, the the fae folk, maybe right, right, right. Of course, sure, Uh, all sorts of things. I mean, you go back and look at mythological texts, and you can see evidence of what I think is extraterrestrial interference as it was dealt with by the church, by the spiritual communities, you know, by the different cultures. I mean, you look in the indigenous tribes, there's their own mythology about things like this. Healings, I mean, Native Americans take people into mountains and leave them and wait for the lights to show up to heal them. <laughs> and then they come back and pick them up two days later and they're, they're changed people and their names are changed. And you find this again and again and again in different traditions. Kathleen. It's, it's a, oh, go ahead. Yes. Jennifer. Yeah. Well, go ahead. no, I'm, I'm I'll, I'll let, I'll let Kathy jump in. Well, uh, I was going to ask you, and I, and I really think that we're going to have to do another show with you, Kathleen, just about the Betty and Barney Hill, because th- this this has gone, I think, in another direction. Well, I've Betty and Barney thousands of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and we could do another show just going into that and going into, like, trying, because I did read about your, uh, I did read your article about debunking the debunkers on that, and I really want to get your point of view because you're really close to this. But being so close to it, how did that experience, and this this goes into what we've been talking about, how did that experience change them, Betty and Barney both? Was there like a definite, before 1961, this is how they were, and after, they're totally, or were, they, were they totally different? It changed them in many ways. Initially... It changed Barney from being a very self-confident, strong, uh, wonderful, intelligent, 
articulate man into a man who was frightened, a man who was deeply disturbed because he had conscious, continuous recall <clears throat> of observing non-human entities on a craft that were looking down at him and he felt that he was going to be captured like a bug in a net. That was his statement. It was in the original uh, reports that he actually did have this sighting of non-human entities. And the fact that they did have this missing time, that they did have these conscious memories of observing a fiery orb sitting on the ground and of an uh, of a roadblock, but they didn't know where or when that roadblock occurred during this missing time. Um, th that was great, deeply disturbing. The fact that his best dress shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes, mm -hmm. and he had no prosaic explanation for that. That Betty's dress was torn in several places uh, and then developed a pink powder that grew on it pink powdery substance. Um, the, the spots on the trunk of the car that caused the compass to spin and spin, indicating that there was a magnetic field around the trunk of the car. We've seen that in other cases of alien abduction. Uh, all of these things played on Betty's and Barney's minds. So that was one way that they changed. Another way that they changed is they no longer viewed themselves as people from a nationalistic nation. They viewed themselves as inhabitants of the earth. And they went on to help many, many other people, people who were less fortunate than themselves. Barney actually received an award from Sergeant Shriver, who was the head of the U.S. Uh, government's poverty program, uh, for the good work that he did through the Office of Economic Opportunity to help people in the state of New Hampshire. He was appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, State Advisory Committee, for the work that he was doing in the civil rights movement. And Betty was doing that with him. They became much more active in doing very good work for the community and for their fellow, fellow citizens of this world. So it's like it, 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 it was a fearful experience. Yes. But it had a positive effect, a positive change to their lives. Yes. Ultimately. And you have to remember, they were the first ones that we know of or knew of at that point who had been abducted. It wasn't until 1966 right. at, uh, that the Antonio Villas-Boas case uh, was publicly known. So this is the first case of this kind in the United States. Betty and Barney knew practically nothing about UFOs and certainly nothing about UFO abductions. Since then, we've found many people who uh, were abducted before Betty and Barney. But, you know, the fear that went along uh, with their experience really collared their perception of what had truly happened, their perception of, of these non-human entities. 
because they didn't know if they were going to be dissected, if they were going to be carried off to a distant planet. Uh, they had no idea. And this, all of this caused such great fear uh, on the night that this experience occurred. And Barney's conscious recall of what he observed uh, greatly frightened him. Betty had no conscious recall of observing those non-humans because she remained inside the vehicle with the interior light on when Barney walked into a field in Lincoln, New Hampshire and looked up at that craft through binoculars as it hovered only 100 feet overhead. Uh, and Kathleen, you are an experiencer yourself? Yes. So this also lends credence to the fact that this does kind of run in families. So is well, it was it just you and Betty, or were there others in your family that also ex- experienced things? Well, I have to tell you that I have just recently come out publicly and, and stated this, although my case was investigated uh, way back in the 1970s uh, by Dr. James Harder. Okay. And and by others, I was hypnotized by Bud Hopkins. I met with John Mack, uh, oh. with John Carpenter. So many people were aware of this. But um, yes, it. I think that I was 17 when it happened for the first time. I can't say that with certainty. Sure. Uh, Betty was one. My mother was also taken. At the same time? My mother was taken uh, independently from okay. Betty. Okay. My mother and I were taken together when I was 17, but there were other times when, for example, my mother uh, always went grocery shopping on Friday evening. And she'd go out, she'd get the groceries, and then she'd be home, oh, by 9 o'clock at night at the latest. Well, one night she went out and got the groceries And she simply didn't come home. My father was distraught. He didn't know what had happened to her. And she showed up, not knowing that she was late. And she had frozen food in the car. The frozen food was thawed. The ice cream was soup. And no explanation for what had occurred. Mm. So, you know, that's possibly, I can't think of any rational explanation for that. It sounds like she might have been abducted then, too. I, I want to add something, Interesting. too. Uh, t- uh, Jennifer, you know, we talked, yeah. we did have Travis on the show and we talked to him, and I, it was very much the same kind of course of events. That there was the way he was before his experience, and then there was, there's the way that he is after. And so. It, it it does seem to change people on a very fundamental kind of level. And there's there's a parallel to near death experiences because people will have those. Oh, absolutely. And they yes. and they yeah. will change their per, total personality will change. And and yes. I I did get Travis to talk a little bit about a paranormal experience that he had as well, something to do with his son, I think saving his son from a was it a fire? I can't remember. I'd have to go back and listen. Mm. But it was something that mm-hmm. he said that happened that 
he heard a voice in his in his head to say to go check on his son, and he went to check on him, and something bad was about to happen. He was able to get him. Uh, so there's that element again in in all this. Well, you, we we don't know if that relates to um, ET contact, ET consciousness, or if it's something that just happens as we evolve either in our aging process as humans or depending on how we seek in our lives, how open we are psychologically and emotionally and spiritually to certain events. You know, I I remember reading a a memoir uh, by Einstein, and it's slightly off topic, but not completely. And he was so fascinated with trying to discover certain things. He had such big questions in his mind that he constantly was looking for the answers for. And and he would get downloads. He would have dreams, and he would wake up and write things down. And many of his discoveries came from insights that literally came in seconds, where suddenly, because of his his thinking about something, he was able to connect some synopses and and either download or understand or some parts of his brain that maybe were some conscious levels were communicating to higher, more conscious levels of something important that he was seeking. So I think there's a lot to consciousness that we don't completely understand. But certainly, if you start to deal with uh, abductions, the, the whole concept that we could not be alone in the universe. What does that mean? How does contact change you? In, in, in fact, I wanted to mention that we are actually having a whole specific panel focused on this, like the experience of being an ET contact person. How does it change you? And this is a, a private panel we're doing on Sunday. Not not to wrap this back to the conference, but I'm, but I'm sort of doing that to say that, you know, that this is exactly what we're going to be dealing with. And the people on the panel are not only Kathy Martin and Travis Walton, but also uh, Dom Dundiri, who's worked closely with Kathy, and Randall Nickerson and Selma Sadek. Do you know those names, and have you heard about the aerial school phenomenon that occurred in Zimbabwe uh, yes. in 1994? I, I, I don't know the okay. names, but I do know the aerial school, yes. Right. Uh, I'm don't. Okay. So I'm not is, sure if these two gentlemen do, though, so you may want to explain it. Um, in 1994, if I'm correct in my you are. timing, <laughs> I am. There was a, uh, there's a, there's a school of... Uh, but actually, I think it was a missionary school called the Ariel School in East Zimbabwe, and it had about maybe a hundred students in it, literally from kindergarten through twelfth grade. And there were sixty school students on the playground during this event, where I think it was around noon. This light suddenly, bright light, showed closely in the sky above the schoolyard then turned into a craft. That craft landed less than 500 feet from the schoolyard. Beings got out of that craft, maneuvered around the craft, kind of hovering, and literally made eye-to-eye contact with a number of the school students who claimed that they felt they were telepathically communicated with by these beings. And there were scenes of the future, which may not be messages or warnings communicated to them about the care for the earth, 
the care for our fellow human beings, the evolution of human consciousness. I mean, very, very far out concepts that these children that ranged in age from like five or six to like 15 were trying to communicate. And the only reason we have this is it made national news. I mean, it was a huge sighting. You know, I mean, 60 school kids go running into the the, the school when the craft, you know, leaves uh, and telling their teachers what just happened. Of course, news media showed up and John Mack showed up with mm-hmm. a camera within mm-hmm. a week of hearing this news. He flew to Zimbabwe, put a couple of cameras together and interviewed these children and one of those children is going to be at our conference. Her name is Selma Sadek. And um, anyone can go online and probably find footage about this. But uh, Randall Nickerson is a filmmaker in New York City. He has been working on a documentary about this very famous Zimbabwe school uh, incident. And it's called The Ariel Phenomenon. And it should be out probably later this year as a documentary film. So uh, this is part of what concludes our Sunday program along with Travis Walton speaking and Kathleen Martin. So that's our full arch of what we are addressing it with our theme of UFOs, extraterrestrials, and the future of humanity. We're, we're really trying to open people's minds to uh, what happens when you take this seriously, when you're an experiencer, how do you go forward, how do you fit into the rest of the world, and uh, make sense of it for yourself. It's it's not an easy topic, and I think in community and with others who are trying to do the same thing, we're more likely to be better at what we are doing than if we try to do it completely alone. Let me open this up to, do you guys have any questions? Do you want to ask? Um, not not really. It just sounds like a very interesting conference. I wish I could join you. Yeah, I want to. I wanna... uh, we do, too. I'm very excited about this conference. I have been waiting to hear Dr. John Brandenburg and about the evidence that he discovered on the surface of Mars with with NASA funding and, uh, boy, of uh, two thermonuclear explosions. I just, I can't wait to hear his lecture. Yes, yes, me, me too. Yeah, I want to elaborate and say that I like the direction that you take these conferences, that you're kind of... uh, Injecting real, real current things, and uh, you know, um, being really open to, to to more modern trends and the evolution of the, the the whole phenomenon as well. I think you're doing a great job of that. Well, thanks, thanks very much. They're not easy to put on. I'll bet. Uh, they take a year, a year of planning, and we take great financial risk at doing them as well. So. Uh, um, you know, to bring fly in all these speakers. And, and we do it because it's an opportunity for us as members of MUFON, which is a, a wide variety of members. Some are field investigators, some are just event coordinators like myself. But, you know, there's a large group of people that all want to learn. And we want to learn beyond what we're capable of just learning ourselves. And there's also something very important. You know, you can do a lot of research on the internet, but you have to really develop your um, higher 
you know, mind or your skeptic self to say you have to kind of take a lot of things with a grain of salt. And when you come by them three or four or five or six times, or you're an experiencer yourself, or you get to meet the people firsthand who were the experiencers, it changes your relationship to how you digest and relate to that material. If you have a relationship with the people that you can always call up or email or see again at another conference and ask them a deeper question. So it's a conferences and personal experience like this are a totally different um, entity than just, you know, reading a book or watching something online. So if any of your listeners are on the fence about whether or not it's important to come, it's hugely important. You you develop friends and going uh, year after year, it's almost like seeing a, a family, like a cosmic family of friends that are really trying to rattle with this issue. Uh, and there's there's some comfort in knowing who are struggling uh, like you are and also learning like you are. And if we do have disclosure, say maybe with a big D rather than a little D, like maybe a Luis Elizondo's uh, coming forward with maybe disclosure in a, a slightly smaller way because it certainly wasn't right or a major president from another country getting up and telling us it was someone who left the Pentagon Still, it's disclosure, and if we have major disclosure, people are going to need to be able to rely on other people this topic from before and develop a way of dealing with it. So the more people who are willing to step up to that bat, uh, like the self-selected people like Kathy Martin and some of our other wonderful experts who are coming, um, you're going to be extremely needed in, in the future for for communities and and social groups and institutions to wrap their brain about how do we go forward. So that's my my closing statement, but I'll make one more pitch for MUFON. (laughs) If you can't come to the conference, you can watch it all. You can live stream it. So there is a way, I think it's $74. Instead of attending the conference, you can literally live stream it or then watch it later and have access for a year to all of MUFON's video files. And MUFON TV is its own designated channel online. It's a pay-per-view network, but you can uh, garner and see gathered in one place lots of incredible video information specifically on this topic. And it's very poignant. It's not like watching Ancient Aliens. Not that I'm dishing Ancient Aliens. (laughs) I'm not. But... But there's no commercials, and we don't repeat the same thing. And you can, it's interactive, so you can pick and choose what you want to watch, right? So you can watch the talking about his, uh, his work with, directly with what he thinks was an alien species that worked with him in the government from time to time. So it, it's fascinating. And it's ju- fascinating. And, and, and Jennifer, what are, the da- what are the dates again? The dates are July 27th, 28th, and 29th, and you can go to MUFONSymposium.com to look at all the events. I'll, I'll pitch one more thing if I have a moment to as well. Uh, because we're, MUFON's mission is about the future of humanity, and so is our mission statement for you know the title of this conference. It's UFOs, extraterrestrials, and the future of humanity. We're really trying to reach out to the general public. So we're doing something that has never, ever been done before. We're offering two lectures for free on Friday morning. For those people who are slightly on the fence, who don't know if it's worth flopping down 100 bucks a day or something to or $100 for Saturday or Sunday to come and they want to know if it's worth their while, they can come and hear Travis Walton or Lynn Katai on Friday. 
Um, and uh, for those who can't afford anything, we also have a film screening that's going on all day Saturday and all day Sunday. So there are films going all day, and, and at least four or five of those films have filmmakers who will be there introducing the films, and there'll be people in those films doing Q&A afterwards. So we've made a big effort to outreach to that that future of humanity, the younger generations, and the about whether or not it's worth to pay to come to a conference, they can come and literally check it out. But to some extent, they can see some programs for free. Not everything, of course, as we have to pay the hotel bill when it comes down to it. But you know, yeah, that that can be expensive. Uh, Kath- it, it can be, and we we get it. Uh, Kathleen. Uh- Yes. Please tell everybody where the, they can see your work and uh, where your your books are available. You can go to Kathleen with a K dash Marden M A R D E N uh, dot com, and uh, that is my website. My autographed copies of my four books are available there, or uh, through Amazon, through bookstores. They're published. Not self-published. They're published by a, a regular uh, professional publisher. And uh, I have a fifth book, which will be coming out in 2019, that has just been picked up by a very large publisher. Congratulations. Yeah, very cool. Thank you. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, but we will be back for some more tomfoolery on Conspiranormal. <laughs> Rob, it's so good to have you back. It's good to be back. I miss you guys. We missed you too. We miss you. You know, I, I've been really stressed out with work and everything, and it's like it's nice to have these these uh, fun little recreational moments. Yes, it's kind of warm in here though. I almost took my shirt off. I was gonna bra with you guys. I don't know if that's cool, but well, it's on video. So you yeah, can we, we we could all take our shirts shirts off. I'm sure the ladies out there would really love to see that. Me and yeah. Adam have some fresh cuts. <laughs> yeah, 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 we do. We're starting to do videos now. We, we we stopped doing the Facebook live streaming because it started. It kept kicking us off, and we don't know whether that was Facebook or that was the internet or what it was. I'm still blaming it all on Comcast because I hate them. Illuminati. Yeah, I mean, you fixed the little string that was keeping the internet together in here from, Comcast, the, from the Illuminati squirrel damage. Yeah. Comcast called me the other day and they're like, hey, we have this great new offer for you. I was at work. So I was like, okay, cool. Is it going to save me money? They're like, well, I can't guarantee it's going to save you money. I was like, okay. <laughs> Are you offering me new channels? They're like, well, not necessarily. I was like, well, then I don't have time to talk to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Unless you're giving me new channels, man, I got no time for you. They got oh the Scientology God. channel in oh, Nashville. Good. I see it on the sign right Do by Do they the really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. It's available through one of the, I think it's Dish Network, though. Not, oh, not, yeah, you yeah. You have to switch to Dish, man. Oh, yeah. When I was in, uh, when I was doing my little trip cross country, one of the hotels I stayed in had like a Dish Network and they had the Scientology. Yeah. channel on and and i started watching a little bit of it and i instantly just felt brainwashed <laughs> it, was, it was just like it was just like so it was so soothing and then but I, I know there were like like waves like going to my head oh, yeah, telling some, me to worship l ron hubbard it's just tom cruise with like the spiral in the background <laughs> yeah that's, that's what it really was <laughs> interspersed with l ron hubbard just like constantly going in and out yeah, it was it was it was pretty bad, man. It was all something about like how their organization is set up, and I, I was like, oh my god, I can't watch this. This is this is horrible. Which Rob gets to like, he can sneak over to the Scientology Center here in Nashville anytime he wants. I watch them sometimes at night, man. There's one room up at the top of the building where there's a flickering light. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing there. That's where the brainwashing is going on. <laughs> yeah, it's MK Ultra. They they got them hooked up to uh uh was it what is it a uh, biofeedback? That's what they used to do to people. That's what uh like Allen Ginsberg said they did like because uh-huh. he, he signed up for some of the that Harvard stuff, and they like you know fed him, him all this Unabomber. acid, and then they like set you to uh, or they put electrodes in your head, and then like the I think some of the flashing lights are like tied to your biofeedbacks, so, or like I guess you. Getting some weird little loop or so damn weird. Yeah. Uh, it's just weird. I, I did want to address one thing. I'm I'm looking at the camera. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I just just to say just just so no one thinks that we're like totally sold our souls out to move on or something. Uh, you know, Jennifer, we consider her a friend and we wanted to help her promote the conference. And I know that there'd been all this kind of scuttlebutt and controversy about, especially last year with, uh, MUFON dealing with the, the secret space program conference, which we talked a little bit about that with Walter Bosley one time about, uh, uh, what's his name? Corey good and how they kind of, we're starting to go really new agey and then the whole John Ventry thing where he had made some kind of like racist posts and all that, Mm -hmm. all that stuff is there, you know, take it as, as you will. I didn't really want to get into the controversy on that because that would have just bogged down the entire conversation and people were fighting that whole fight last year. And I really wasn't, wanting to get into that and i actually did ask jennifer about that last year when i was when i saw her in philadelphia and i actually have all that recorded it's from her point of view but you know it it is what it is we're not associated or affiliated with mufon it's just it was helping out someone that we consider a friend right well and i I do want to address also that it's it's you know it's the mutual ufo network it's supposed to be a place for people Right, with all kinds of different ideas and experiences, and sort of a melting pot of, you know, a continuation of like what was back in the day Project Blue Book, which got canceled, dissolved, and hidden and buried, and then you you know you've got these other things that that kind of pop up. And this is a, it's a non-government thing. It's a, um, you know, people put their their own time and their energy into these things, and they do tend to evolve. And there's, you can't blame any one 
you can't blame the whole organization for stuff that any one person did or said or you know acted around or whatever. But it is nice to have that out there, that that sort of grouping and that connection and that that uh, um, organizational kind of sharing sort of an idea. So yeah, and there's and there's many groups that do it. And Mufon is kind of there's been a lot of criticism about Mufon in the past. Uh, you know, Jennifer's group. Uh, it's it's Mufon's kind of weird because they're a pretty loose organization, but then they kind of come together in this conference that, every that's, year. That's what I'm trying to commend. Yeah, about. That's, that, yeah, that's what I really like about it is that you know it it is so such a loose. Everyone's welcome to come and share ideas, kind of a thing. So it's so, hard it's hard to hold any one little thing against like the whole conglomerate. It's like decentralized by state, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. But there, there was a lot of controversy about it last year. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, well, in my thought process of having Jennifer on, should I address that again, or should I just kind of let it not talk about it? And I decided, well, I'm just not going to talk about it. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, for, and then for as the far listening as, audience, as far as that secret space program stuff, I mean, it seems like they're really changing it up this year, so it's not even really right about that so much. Right. Which is good because there was a ton of controversy about, especially with Corey Good. Yeah. Because he is probably less than credible. Just putting that out there as well. <laughs> but it's still, but you know, it, it, it's almost like entertainment. And there, there was a panel that was done where it's Corey Good, I think Richard Dolan, and a couple of few other people. And Dolan kind of went after him and said, like, you guys really don't have any proof of anything that you're saying. So again, that loose aspect, like Rob was talking about. So there's that. Uh, so yesterday, yesterday, <laughs> we're recording this on July seventeenth. What are your thoughts on this summit with Trump and Putin, and especially with Trump and Putin? Talking uh, with with Trump and what he said yesterday. Got any thoughts on it? Thoughts? Yeah, I'm very confused that if there is anything to all of these suspicions, uh, that they would act like that, and they would be so brazen, and you know, just so obvious that how it would be interpreted. I don't. I mean, I know he's, you know. I think he lacks a lot of self-awareness because he's such a, uh, just a, uh, sociopath. A, yeah, just a classic sociopath. So I know he lacks a lot of self-awareness, obviously, but I would think that, you know, people around him or even the Russians would want to portray things differently if they really did have something going on. So it was, Oh, the people around him had to be scrambling. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's what that's what everyone says is that kind of job, like a PR rep. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but that's what everyone says is that like no one can handle Trump. No, he's not being handled. Like all his advisors, everybody tries, and then he just like. Well, the person I feel sorry for is uh, Kelly, his chief of staff. You imagine having to wrangle that every single day. Oh God! I mean, Trump is just going to say whatever he wants to say, but but this was. This was pretty much just, and, and okay, I always have to make these caveats because, you know, like we've talked about this many times. You don't really 
the the intelligence community uh, has been into some dirty shit. We all know that. But that being said, when you're kind of like the boss of these people, and you just throw basically are what your employee are your employees, and you just throw them under the bus like he did yesterday in front of the guy that supposedly did it. Yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) Like, I know, like, how I would feel as an employee if my boss just threw, just threw myself and everybody else that I work with under the bus completely. And that's kind of what he did yesterday. Now, did he commit treason? I I don't really know. I think that might be a little bit of a stretch, but um, but it just it looks so bad. You that know, was like why was screaming yesterday? Like why would you? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be in Russia's. It wasn't in Russia's interest either to make it look that bad. I wouldn't mm-hmm. think. But well, I think Putin looked surprised a little bit too. Yeah, but. But in my, he looked like he wanted to just bust out laughing, man. But I mean, but my thought on Putin is that I I I honestly like I kind of have taken the whole piss tape thing, even though it's it's so hilarious. The whole piss tape thing with a grain of salt, yeah. Like it really, but after yesterday, that makes me really wonder if he's really got something on Trump. Well, if Trump has had a relationship with them, that that long, you know, he's had relationships with a lot of high level Russian business people, et cetera. And, and, uh, you know, he's been on Putin's radar for so long and he's obviously really ambitious and wants to get into politics. So yeah. if Putin's from that, that, you know, that KGB world, you start grooming people, you start amassing blackmail on people, you know, at the beginning, you don't right. wait, wait until they're, you know, if they see potential, you know, they'll just start. So, yeah, I'm sure, you know, with some of the friends that Trump has had, I'm sure there's there's plenty of shit you could come up with. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I've said many times, I mean, even before we were getting in more politics back in like 2016, I said many times that I thought that, um, it would be good to have some kind of reapproachment with the with the Russians. Yeah, I've always I've always been for a me too for a more friendly relationship. Yeah, um, but like that is not the way that you do it. No, it if has he to, had said yeah. if he had said something like yeah, well, I acknowledge that I acknowledge that this happened, and I don't want it to happen again because I don't want it to hurt our relationship between the two countries like it has, which is all true. If he had said something like that, still strong, but, but at the same time, diplomatic, which Trump isn't diplomatic. Let's, let's just, you know, put that out there. But if he had said something like that, then, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to learn to put this, put us behind us, but, but we're watching you make sure you don't do this, this shit again to us. You know, because I do believe, I mean, after really looking at it now that, you know, that they had something to do with trying to manipulate the election in his favor. Now, whether there's any kind of direct collusion between 
him and the Russians. That's a whole other yeah issue. But yeah, I mean, you know, Putin wanted Trump elected. It was obvious. He felt that Trump would be the better the be, would be the better choice because for for Russia. Yeah. Obviously, you know, uh, and and their national and their national interests. So that's that's pretty obvious to me. But then that whole thing that he said that Trump said too yesterday about like we got to look at the servers. Where are the servers? And then he started. Then he starts talking about the the, the emails. The Hillary Clinton. The Hillary Clinton Trump, emails. Yeah. Like we're still on this. <laughs> yeah. Like it's been. Almost two years, and we're still on the emails, dude. And today, I hear on the radio our our you know our conservative talk radio station here in town. They were trying to blame everything on Obama. It's like, come on, man, we, we're way past that point. <laughs> that's all they got. I mean, and yes, you know, so I'm sure somebody's screaming at the radio right now. And yes, Obama did try to blame thing on Bush too. This is something they yeah, all do. Yeah, yeah. But it's just how just many more years can go by it, before? Yeah. Oh, and I I sent you I sent uh, you yesterday, Sir Phil, that that video of the guy. Just, just freaking out, calling Trump treasonous and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, he was a pretty angry veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made the comment that Trump is, you know, pretty much a big distraction. Like, if you look at it, uh, the one percent now are just completely and totally out of control because Trump is the number one thing people are talking about. And Noam Chomsky has made that same point, right? That Trump is the big distraction, that what we have is a bunch of people that are really behind him that represent the really top elite class that are just basically partying while Rome or fiddling while Rome burns, essentially. What do you think, Rob? Um, Well, I don't know much about the current situation because as usual i've been living under a rock but it's probably a good thing man honestly i you know (laughs) it's everything i have to hold myself together on a day-to-day basis these days i can't i can't i can't handle much and you know that's true for most people man that's true for most people everybody's like everybody has their own problems most people are getting really tired of of hearing this stuff day in and day out but I, I can speak to, to trends and systems, and I think that that's um, a very obvious and very natural way that America would be headed and probably is headed is just, you know, uh, pulling a little more from the poor, giving a little more to the elite, because that's been the trend for a long time. And mm-hmm. behind the scenes, you've got these corporations, these huge overly powerful, overly involved in government corporations that I've been buddies with our current president for a long time. And he has the same interests that they have. I mean, it's just a, it's kind of an obvious natural thing that that's what's going to happen. And I wish that the spotlight was more on that than on, you know, oh, Trump said cafefe on Twitter or something. Right, right. Well, what, what stupid shit did he say today? Uh, one of the thing, other things that I love on, on Facebook uh, people will post these things up 
like Trump is going to kill the the, the gray raccoon in this area. You know, he's like th- this policy is going to kill this endangered species of cute animal. Like what the f- what the frig is that, man? <laughs> but to your point, I want to read this. I'm going to read a little bit of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this is something that uh, Dr. Future keyed me into. And it's an article called Survival of the Richest. The wealthy are plotting to leave us behind. And it has a picture here of Rob's hero uh, <laughs> right next to a picture of Elon. Mars. Nice. Good, good, good old Elon. But uh, this, this is interesting. So this art, this is. Uh, See, last year I got invited to a super deluxe private resort to deliver a keynote speech to what I assumed would be a hundred or so investment bankers. It was by far the largest fee I had ever t- offered for a talk, about half my annual's professor salary, all to deliver some insight on the subject of the future of technology. I've never liked talking about the future. The Q&A sessions always end up more like parlor games where I'm asked to opine on the latest technology buzzwords as if they were ticker symbols for potential investments. Blockchain, 3D printing, CRISPR. You guys heard of CRISPR? CRISPR is like where you, it's like a do-it-yourself kit where you can manipulate DNA. Yeah. The audiences are rarely interested in learning about these technologies on their potential impacts beyond the binary choice of whether or not to invest in them, but money talks, so I took the gig. After I arrived, I was ushered into what I thought was the green room, but instead of being wired with a microphone or taken to a stage, I just sat there at a plain round table as my audience was brought to me. Five super wealthy guys, yes, all men, from the upper echelon of the hedge fund world, After a bit of small talk, I realized they had no interest in the information I had prepared about the future of technology. They had come with questions of their own. They started out innocuously enough. Ethereum or Bitcoin? Is quantum computing a real thing? Slowly but surely, however, they edge into their real topics of concern. Which reason will be less impacted by the coming climate crisis, New Zealand or Alaska? Is Google really building Ray Kurzweil a home for his brain, and will his consciousness live through the transition, or will it die and be re-reborn as a whole new one? Finally, the CEO of a brokerage house explained that he had nearly completed building his own underground bunker system and asked, how do I maintain authority over my security force after the event? The event. That was their euphemism for the environmental collapse, social unrest, nuclear explosion, unstoppable virus, or Mr. Robot hack that takes everything down. The single question occupied us for the rest of the hour. They knew armed guards would be required to protect their compounds from the angry mobs, but how would they pay the guards once money was worthless? What would stop the guards from choosing their own leader? The billionaires considered using special combinations lock on the food supply that only they knew or making guards wear disciplinary collars of some kind in return for their survival or maybe building robots to serve as guards and workers if that technology could be developed in time. That's when it hit me, at least as far as these gentlemen were concerned, this was a talk about the future of technology. Taking their cue from Elon Musk, colonizing Mars, Peter Thiel reversing the aging process, or Sam Altman and Ray Kurzweil uploading their minds into supercomputers, 
they were preparing for a digital future that a whole had a whole lot less to do with making the world a better place than it did with transcending the human condition altogether and insulating themselves from a very real and present danger of climate change, rising sea levels, mass migrations, global pandemics, nativist panic, and resource depletion. For them, the future of technology is really about just one thing, escape. Not escape, but maintaining power, I would say. And I think that that's a natural, another, again, another natural course for any any organism, any any kind of system, really. I mean, there's... there's um, you take any any kind of living creature on the planet, and it, its whole whether it derives power from its 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 speed or its ability to defend itself or its ability to to take from something else, it's all it's all a power grab, and there's no difference with with us, you know. And it, we're at a point where we can kind of see where the trends and where the future is going. It's only natural that this, especially the super super elite, like they they've already got to be involved in projects for you know like oh transfer my brain into this like sweet android body like <laughs> kind of programs because i'm sure that they're out there and if i had billions of dollars yeah. that's what i'd be investing in <laughs> like yeah you know? well this is like the the cyberpunk dystopia i yeah. mean this is classic the privatization of you know militaries and corporations becoming more powerful than governments etc and and this is kind of that classic uh, uh, end game kind of stuff for uh, not only survival of the elites, but this is about the, you know, the stuff Alex Jones was into uh, over a decade ago, I guess now about the elites want to live forever. And so they got to kill us all. They're going to replace us with robots. Yeah. And, uh, and there's that, uh, there's that, that artificial intelligence theorist Hugo de uh, Garris, I think is how you say his name, but he came up with the whole idea of the art elect war and that these elites and there'll be the biggest conflict of the future is going to be between the elites who want life extension, uh, intelligence enhancement and all these things versus us regular Joes (laughs) who don't get that. So obviously it's going to create conflict. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, these are the people who are the most clued in, you know, so they probably realize how fragile the our whole, you know, the world order and our societies are becoming, and they got the bucks, you know, to survive. Um, yeah, but I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. I mean, no. That's, that's pretty no, dire. No, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, terrible. That's, that's, that's pretty dire. I think and, it's funny that, and they, that this guy can write this article. Yeah. By the way, this guy, I can't remember his name, but uh, he, uh, I mean, he's written a lot about uh, technology and uh, about marketing, um, about corporations, uh, futurism, that, that kind, those kind of aspects. But, but for him to, to be able to write this and to say like, oh yeah, this is what these guys are thinking. As this, if yeah, it's just, fact, this is what, this big, is what's no going on. You know, I, I when uh, Mike sent this in a in an email to everybody, and my first initial reaction when I kind of read it was was like, isn't this the basically the plot of Atlas Shrugged? Yeah. Where the the have you, you are you familiar with that Atlas Shrugged, Rob? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, Ayn Rand. Yeah, I have the book. Yeah, and so so you know what happens at the end of Atlas Shrugged. Spoiler alert: that. The basically the elite leave the rest of the world behind, 
It's a little different, but it's essentially that. So, but it's also the fact that, you know, you hear a lot of stuff about that climate change isn't real or that man-made global warming is a lie or it's a hoax. But they're betting on it. Yeah, but here are people that are saying, well, yeah, we know it's happening. And there's also, you know, like Exxon um, did a study that said, yeah, it's happening. But they don't seem to care. They just seem to be like, well, let's just get as much as we can get before the whole shithouse goes down in flames to paraphrase Jim Morrison. Well, think about it. It's also, uh, it's the end of, you know, we really kind of have a very existential selfish elite. And in the past, you know, even though um, the various elites, you know, have done terrible things, I think there is a culture of this, this kind of nobility culture of, feeling like they were responsible for society and feeling like, you know, even like the wasps here, you know, I mean, they, they have certain, you know, patronages and they had airs of, of, uh, uh, being caretakers of society, et cetera. But now I think these people, when they're a lot of them like Elon Musk, I mean, these are like new rich people. Yeah. Um, they just don't give a shit, and it's it's just don't about say them. that with Rob in the room. He okay. loves Elon Musk. <laughs> Sorry, but no, I mean they just you know <laughs> the exception to the rule. <laughs> he's one of the good ones. Yeah, he's going to try to take everybody. Yeah, right. He's going to come get Rob on the way the way to Mars. <laughs> Got a seat on his rocket. <laughs> but you know, I don't think there's that culture anymore. You know, maybe that is that was just a you know leftover from really old times, but. I don't know, but I think it's... They don't seem to care. Yeah, and it's... They don't seem to see that, you know, we're part of the greater whole. And and later on in this article, that's kind of the where this author goes with this, is that he says, well, you know, if we try to accentuate some of these human aspects to to technology, then we might build a better world, but he says that, but these guys, they just don't seem to really get that. They want to just have an escape plan in case everything goes South. I mean, what are they going to do, man? The thing is, you know, put some, shot collars on their guards, some, bubba, <laughs> some bubba's, uh, you know, out there are going to be the ones that are going to survive. Not these guys, you know what I mean? They, yeah. These yeah. are delusions of grandeur. I mean, what, you know, they're mercenary. Oh, I got a mercenary army. But yeah, then what if when money doesn't matter? What if, you know, all these these old things are going to matter? Or big solar flare comes and knocks out all the technology. Yeah. So it's all down to who knows how to grow a garden and who knows how to Yeah, clean a it's going to be real stuff. Like, right. I, don't, I don't think these people are going to be able to survive. You know, unless maybe, you know, they'll have some kind of private mind control stuff or whatever. I don't, I don't know how... We're just going to be hanging out one day and we're going to be having a cookout and all of a sudden we're just going to see like rockets going up (laughs) (laughs) and we're going to, and we're going to realize that like the, the elite have left the planet. Because Elon Musk is waiting Are we on, his, really, on the, newly really be, ter- the newly terraformed Mars. Is that going to be a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, true. the 1% leaves and then what? They'll leave Alex Jones down here to lead us. Oh, okay. It's like a helter-skelter kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, Walmart's closed forever. What are we going to do? <laughs> so speaking of cults, helter-skelter, um, you were on vacation you went to Colorado. 
I went to you Colorado. Some interesting. I spent things. some time with family, and uh, I met. I have to. I guess I have to try to be uh, careful. Yeah, I got to be careful, not reveal identities and stuff. Um, so I I met this woman who um, came into contact with um, some people around the area my family live in because she has a uh, she had some family who lived in the area. Uh, I guess her her mother was from the area, and her mother's uncle, uh, who she you know really beloved uncle, and he disappeared in the thirties, and he was a former member of the uh, Mormon Church in Salt Lake City, who had uh, left the church and left Salt Lake City, and he went he disappeared in the thirties. So it was always this, you know, family tragedy. And she was doing her ancestry thing, and there was a call for anyone related to her uncle to submit DNA by the police department of a small town in western Colorado. So I think her and her brother, I think, submitted DNA, and it was confirmed that a skull that they found that had been in, I guess the storage for like, you know, just been a cold case yeah. since the seventies. It was discovered in the seventies. So it was confirmed that it was indeed her uncle and everything pointed back to, um, him being murdered by, uh, some kind of paramilitary secret orders of the Mormon church, probably coming from what used to be known as the Danites, who were the uh, a paramilitary wing of the Mormon church that started when Joseph Smith was still alive. So wow. apparently into the 30s, they were still tracking down people who left the church and murdering them, burning them, and burying their remaining bones in boxes in the desert. That's hardcore, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and keep in mind, you know, Mormons, they, they don't even drink tea because it has caffeine in it. <laughs> yeah. But they'll kill a mofo if you, of course, if, if you leave yeah. the church. Of course, Not I'm now. sure this doesn't Not happen now. anymore, but I was just surprised that, that this would happen of. well into the 30s. That also surprised me, too, when you first told me about it. That really did surprise me. Yeah. Because, so. you know, knowing some things, the, what I know about, well, kind of like the history, you know, um, Utah didn't become a state until 1896. All the states around it became states quite a few years earlier, and the only reason that Utah didn't become a state till then was because they kept negotiating. The U S government kept negotiating with the Mormons to say, you know, we'll let you become a state, but you got to give up polygamy. You can't have polygamy. Yeah. And eventually they, they, I think, I think Brigham Young was still alive at the time. And he said, yeah, well, we'll give it up. And it wasn't just some, uh, you know, big love type, consensual polygamy you know it was arranged and forced marriages of teenage girls and you know right right which is why it's not a good scene yeah which is why the the federal government as a whole had a problem with it thank god they i but before that they had almost been in like a, a near like 
there, there had been like a kind of like a, a small scale war that was going yeah, on absolutely. between them and the, and the federal government. There was a few different times that kind of happened, uh, you yeah. know. And That's so, an interesting history. All it was pretty interesting. And, and then I also went to, uh, we stayed on, uh, on uh, Grand Mesa, which is the largest flat top mountain in the world. And apparently oh. there's a lot of uh, um, Thunderbird lore. Yeah. Oh, nice. From it, and this at this point called Land's End on the Mesa is where the uh, kind of the mythology of the Utes, who are linguistically related to the Aztecs, actually. Yep. And uh, the story is that on this on the top of these this cliff is where the Thunderbirds had their nests, and uh, I guess a, a Ute chief of from ancient days. Um, I think the Thunderbirds killed his son, so he got angry and climbed up the cliffs and threw the eggs and baby Thunderbirds off. And then they were, uh, eaten by a giant serpent, which is like kind of the shape of this, uh, this limestone that protrudes from the rock that you can see. And then the Thunderbirds grabbed the snake and cut it up into a bunch of pieces and dropped it all over the top of the Mesa which created holes and the the tears of the Thunderbirds created all these lakes on top of the Mesa. So that's like their, you know, creation, cre- a creation story yeah. or why the yeah. Mesa is so sacred to them. But it's also interesting because it sounds a lot like the, uh, Kizikoatl story uh-huh. in the, you know, the bird and the snake and they're right. linguistically related to the Aztecs. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. It might've been a way for them to carry on, some mythology that they had had for a long time. Yeah, as, as I was making my way across country, I went to Mesa Verde, which that's that's a wonderful place. Yeah, it's really cool. Where the, the Anasazi ruins, the cliff dwellings are. And I guess that's not too far from where you were, too. No, not too far so, at all. And all those fires that were out there, that was pretty crazy. Yeah, I saw a few, and... uh or I saw I saw one actual fire going on, but I saw the uh, the whole the whole horizon is different now because there's like a haze on it. You can barely see some of the uh, some of the the mountain peaks in the in the distance. How many fires were you saying were out there now? I don't even know. It's over a dozen though. Wow, it's crazy, dude. It seems like it's just going to be a way of life now, really, out there. Because yeah, it's been dry for a long time. Yeah. It's probably, you know. California is like super dry too. It's ridiculous how dry it is there. You know, that, that, that hoax of climate change really is having a. <laughs> That's why they're getting in their bunkers or in their spaceships. Right. All Elon right. Musk, I'm talking to you. Yep. Come on, Elon. Let's... Behind that rocket. Yeah. yeah. Eli can spear normal. You guys, yeah, bring you guys are going to need podcasts up there. I'll, I'll, I'll fix your stereo. <laughs> yeah, Rob can do it. He's useful. <laughs> unlike uh, unlike me. <laughs> Alright, Rob. Well, um next time uh we do have Joshua Cutchin on. And I know I said that two shows ago. Uh we kind of if you didn't notice, we released the show as a little bit out of order. But we're a little out of whack. We'll get it back. But uh, if uh, you know, if you didn't notice, then fine. We- <laughs> <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> but we do have Joshua Cutchin coming on the show uh, to talk about his new book, Thieves in the Night, and we're actually going to be recording that as very tomorrow. Scary. So, 
yeah, very interesting, very dark material, especially for for him. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Rob, can you tell everybody about Patreon? And uh, we gotta get some. We gotta get some patrons. We gotta. Yeah, we, we got we gotta get some stuff up on Patreon. Yeah, we're about Patreon. due. Yeah, we're we're overdue for some stuff. But if we've got plenty of material there already, lots of uh, bonus episodes and uh, other various tiers of stuff, wallpapers, and we got some T-shirts left. We're gonna print some new ones. And if you want to support the show, it's a great way to do that. You can go to Patreon.com/slash Conspiranormal. Uh, you can subscribe there. You don't want to subscribe because you don't want a monthly bill. I totally get that because I couldn't afford it either. Um, but you want to contribute to the show, you can do that at our website, conspiranormal.com, do a one-time contribution. And if you love the show and you want to support us but you don't want to spend any money on it, a great way to do that is just a five-star review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. That's right. Because email us. Please email us at conspiranormal at gmail.com. Yep. Um, and, and if you don't send us money through patreon or donations we're gonna have to start advertising razors or whatever else podcasters advertise buckets of food and you yeah buckets of food and we're gonna have to get with jim baker survival buckets survival buckets it doesn't yeah. sound too bad man yeah. <laughs> that survival Gas bu- masks. I, I guarantee you that survival bucket will probably do you better than the broccoli <laughs> the broccoli and cheese than, survival than, bucket. Than a, a spaceship or a life and, extension. And, you know, I mean, once you're done with the bucket, you can turn it up, you know, you can yeah. you can use it for, you know, for the leavings. So you have buckets of poop all over your house. All right. That was <laughs> profound. Uh, join us next time, guys, on Conspiranormal. Uh, buckets of food. This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly But still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-boggling. We can't just believe that it was. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save 